Mike Pondsmith is an accomplished role-playing, tabletop, and video game designer. He is best known for his work with the publisher R. Talsorian Games, where he developed a majority of the company's role-playing games since its founding in 1982. He is credited as the author of several tabletop role-playing games such as Mekton and Castle Falkenstein, and was recently involved with Creating the Universe of CD Projekt Red's Cyberpunk 2077. Mike Pondsmith, welcome to the creative process. Hello, this is Mike and I'm glad you had me here. And just tell us a little bit about how you came to design games. I think it's like a dream job. When I described it to our different university team members, they're like, wow, that's so cool. You can make a living doing this kind of, it's so imaginative. Just tell how you came to this. It's not like a profession all mapped out for you. Definitely wasn't mapped out when I started. In fact, I had been doing it for about 15 years and my mother was still saying, when are you going to get a real job? And she didn't believe it was a real job till Microsoft hired me as a game designer. So, you know, um, game design when I started was a relatively new idea. Two reasons. One, which was that most games were at this point really traditional games. There weren't a lot of differences between Monopoly and life and so forth. Several big companies made them and that was it. And the video game industry had not really started yet. I mean, my first serious job out of college was working for this uh, video game company called California Pacific. And I was there actually as a graphic designer. And this was way, way back. We worked on Apple IIe's, which gives you an idea of you know, like how far back that was. And basically at that point, you know, nobody thought you could ever make a living doing this. It was just kind of an interesting hobby. But what has happened is the technology has expanded. And as the technology expands, the possibilities and the things you can do, the capabilities expand with them. When I started, game design wasn't really feasible as a career simply because all the games on what we'll call the tabletop sphere, the board game sphere, had all been done. You had chess, you had checkers, you had, you know, basically simple games, you had a lot of card games. But at that point, there wasn't a lot of new stuff. The big thing I remember when I was starting out was physical games where, you know, like you would play the game and when you landed on something, the mousetrap would go off, you know, catch you. So they were more toy games and video games, as I mentioned a bit earlier in the conversation, didn't happen because we really didn't have the capability. When I started California Pacific, which was way back when, we worked in Apple IIe's. And the idea of being able to get 16-bit graphics was like, whoa, you know. But as the capabilities increased, it meant that what you could do in the job and how much money you could throw at the problem increased. And if more money you throw at the problem, means you can pay people to do it. So there was a big shift and... Interestingly enough, I started off in video games, but then by a total, I've never quite figured this out, but I ended up designing a tabletop, what we call now tabletop game, uh, role-playing game called Mekton. And I did it more as kind of, hmm, I wanted this to be interesting, you know, and I'll take a convention, see if anybody likes it. And people liked it. So I suddenly found myself catapulted out of video games and actually into the tabletop realm. And that area was expanding. And one of the big contributors to that was Dungeons and Dragons. 
suddenly people knew about that and they thought well you know i'm not all that interested in you know fantasy but science fiction yeah that'll work giant robots that'll work cyberpunk that'll work so forth and the thing that helped that progress was that the technology moved into desktop publishing and desktop publishing allowed people who had an idea to actually bring it to market i i got off lucky when i started I worked for the University of California at that point, running a typesetting shop. So I had a typesetting machine. So my games could look really, really solid. I had all the mechanics, all the things you would need to do a very professional product. But within about four or five years, um, you know, we had real apples, serious Macintosh technology and desktop publishing technology. And that meant I could do something better than I had before. And I didn't have to sit around running it out with, you know, chemicals to print it out and wax to stick it on a board. I could just make it happen. So my career as such has been sort of the study of how the technology improved and then made what I do much more possible. And now, you know, students that I've had in my classes in the past and now, you know, they have the world in front of them. The technologies and capabilities are just amazing. So as I always say, don't tell me why you can't make a game. Just shut up and go make a game. It's there. You have the tools. I think it's interesting because it's like people who started off writing novels and then they graduate or develop it into careers in, in television or film. How do you think having that grounding in tabletop games gave you an understanding of the architecture? Whereas I think that there are people coming into it now where they know the technology, but they're not, you know, the behind the, the scenes, the thinking, the whole world building. I mean, how mm-hmm. do you think that equipped you to really create now what have been created from your games um, the video games well i think the big thing is that when you work in tabletop you don't have machines to take up the slack and what i mean by that is the numbers and how something is built are all exposed they're at a place where equivalent to if somebody were to do a mod of a video game and they had the code they could add and change things what happens in a tabletop game is you have to figure out what's the distance how often will this event happen how difficult is it to let this event occur what's the gate situation how will i set up a situation a storyline whatever that a player will find it and not feel like they're railroaded into it how can i build on things that will be emergent gameplay and instead of going, oh, you can't do that, finding ways to go, hmm, okay, that was a pretty crazy idea. I think I'll find a way to integrate that. And the biggest problem with digital gaming, learning it from that standpoint, is it doesn't really force you to do those pieces of homework. It gives you a lot of tools, but it's like, to some extent, getting in a Formula One racer and then realizing you've never really driven a car and so you don't know where the clutch is and you don't know where the brakes are and you don't know your limits of speed so when i did teach a long time ago i would insist that students would actually learn something about tabletop and as i was explaining everything you do here on a screen is basically going to have to be tabletopped out so to speak 
in your design documents. You know, it's not going to be like magically, you know, how far a gun shoots or magically how far the dragon runs or whatever. Instead, you'll have to figure that out and you'll have to figure out, did it run too fast? Did it run too slow? When I go and have a gunfight, does everybody just shoot each other? Because the distances were too close. One of the fun ones I did, this is about the time of uh, Avatar, is I showed the class a bunch of the creatures from Avatar, including the 12 foot tall people and so forth like that. And I said, write this down and tell me how you build this video game. And I didn't give them much else. And then when they started putting it together, I said, how fast did the dragons run? How big are the dragons? How are they in relationship to the people that are standing next to them? All these questions will not be answered by your tools. You're going to have to figure that out. And people were throwing numbers out originally. And we had like, and then the dragon teleports across the entire field because they never asked, how big is the world this dragon inhabits? So a large part of it is that tabletop is good for learning how to tell the story and knowing what problems you're going to have to solve before you can actually go deal with it on the video game level. I think that people of a certain generation who didn't grow up playing games might look at any kind of games as being, I don't want to say frivolous, but they think, oh, well, I deal in the real world. But it just seems as I hear you speak about it and you you discuss these things, you might be talking like a politician or someone talking about the problems that we have in the present and looking into the future. You know, what does the world look like? What is society like? How is it composed? Who has control? You know, who, you know, what are the implications? You know, and some of the things that you really tackle are very serious issues like corporate autocracy, just so many elements, you know, what is our technology? Are we controlling our technologies? Our technology controlling really serious issues and people might diminish the seriousness. But when you have to imagine a world, I don't want to tell you what you do, but when you have to imagine a world, you also imagine like, how could you improve upon it? And it's just, a, I think, a wonderful way that games on a practical level, and I believe they are, be, can be used to really map out, or they say game, game out, you know, potential. Yeah. Yeah. Well, essentially, you know, I haven't met too many people in the last, I'd say, 20 years who, you know, look at what I do and go, is that real? And part of that is that what I do is present in almost anything they watch in entertainment in one way or another. And it is used in so many different areas. For example, you know, some of our our best clients and so forth are military, police, fire, you know, people who actually have really hard jobs. But the games allow them to try scenarios out in their head and find new ways to do them. And literally, if you go into most officers, candidate schools and so forth, you'll discover that they are doing essentially role-playing as we do in the games on our tabletops. So it's now a a tool used in business. It's now a tool used in Hollywood. It's now a tool used in engineering, political science. For example, I saw about 10 years ago, one of the major news companies hosted a seminar, as it were, where they got together policy leaders from around the country and they had them working together to solve scenarios that they proposed. And I looked over at my wife and said, yep, there it is, role-playing game. You know, they're role-playing what happens if this 
particular thing occurred. So I think the thing that surprises people still, though, is that it can be a career. They know we use it, but they don't stop and go, where did it come from? Any more than they stop and go, where did this movie come from? You know, they, they sort of think it happened, you know. And there's a lot of work behind that movie, just like there's a lot of work behind every comic book, every novel, and so forth. And, you know, usually when people think about creative endeavors, they tend to think they happen somewhere out there and that magical people do them. Where I liken my career to have been like uh, learning how to make a surfboard. You know, I have a basic idea what a surfboard looks like and I have to figure out how I'm going to shape the thing and how's it going to play, play on the water and what are we going to do with it and what are the goals. And I have to keep shaping, getting better, shaping, getting better getting better so you know even now i've done this for 35 years at least and at least 10 or 15 of it in video games and i still learn something every single day i have boxes and boxes of you know new games reference materials i mean if you could see around me instead of the the view there that uh, we've generated you would see an enormous library full of reference stuff. You know, I was looking up aerospike engines before this call started because I needed to figure out how fast does somebody in cyberpunk, particularly in 2077 or cyberpunk red, get to orbit and what do they use and what's cost effective and what would be realistic rather than, hey, magically they're in space. You know, yeah, but it doesn't have that feel of I'm getting the real dope. So, yeah, it's evolved. It's evolved a lot. And why, I mean, it's, I think you've already explained this fact that you're constantly getting to learn. You have, you can explore your curiosity about so many things, things we can see now, things in the future, because you've gone to 2077 or maybe beyond. You've really- I'm kind of beyond in some ways, yeah. Yeah. So, but why was it that why games? Because there's the, you know, traditional classics. There's all these different storytelling models. But mm-hmm. what was that? It's got games is the place for you. Games are a system whereby you can do entertainment, but you do not control the entire entertainment. It is in many ways, at least a well-designed game is an interaction. And it's a media that both the user and the creator have to share. It's like there's a story many, 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 many years ago. One of my favorite authors was a a science fiction author named Paul Anderson. And he did a lot of my favorite books. And as it happened, I ended up inviting to a role-playing game I was running, which was set roughly in one of his worlds. But when he and his wife got in to play it, they immediately found that they didn't have the kind of control that he would normally have of the story, you know, where before a character might be accepted for what he was, now he had explained what he did in the world or why was he there. You know, in this case, your characters show up and it was a security place. And while there was magic, they didn't have the right passwords to get into the places they were getting into. So all the magic in the world didn't really help them. They had to then in turn figure out what the rules of that situation were. Well, you want to have that in a book where you get that as a game because the game gives the pieces of the world to the player as well as to the creator. 
In fact, it's a three part because it's, I create it, somebody uses it, it becomes a game master or whatever, and then their players interact to make it even more complex. And what's interesting is what you're describing is really like a, this huge interactive improvisation. Oh, yeah. I mean, you really planned it a lot, but you can improv with people like all over the world, right? And even oh, yeah. in different like, you know, countries and languages and they adopt it. And that, I mean, it, I, I, it would be wonderful just to see, I'm sure you can't collect, you know, all the different plays or possibilities but just to see how you are wiring into different people's imaginations that must be so fulfilling actually it's funny because of the nature of technology i do get to see that because i can go online to you know something like twitch and i can watch dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people games using the stuff we have i can also see the let's plays of people who are playing 2077 I can look over the variations that people have come up with. People write me all the time and say, hey, I had this really stupid idea, you know. In short, you do see that interaction. And that's because just like you and I are now talking, you know, across thousands of miles and able to hold a decent conversation, that same set of tools is used in games. I run games that way. We have... Oh, man, I think we're published now for most of our stuff in like nine or 10 languages. So, you know, well, my, my favorite is, you know, when, when we got the call many, many years ago and a bunch of guys from Poland said, hey, yes, we're, we're from this company and we want to do cyberpunk because, well, you know, we grew up playing it. Okay, right. And I thought, oh, wow. So they bought the five copies of Polish cyberpunk that I didn't think anybody would buy. <laughs> but. The point is that we have a connected world already, which means that that feedback between creator and user or audience, you want to call it. I don't think of them as audience. I think of them as user audience is more passive. Uh, creator and user are very much erased. You know, I mean, we can have this conversation, but I can also, you know, be online talking about the very same things and you know and ask me anything on reddit and that's so, so cool i'm just wondering how your thoughts about the future have evolved since you have to come up with so many different possibilities i mean do you describe yourself as or think of yourself as a, a hopeful person or having to imagine scenarios does that what does that do to your thoughts about the future yeah, I actually have a running battle with my wife because she thinks I'm a pessimist. And I say, no, no, I'm an optimist because, you know, if you look around it, there was a time when almost all human activity was people beating up other humans to take their stuff. We don't do that all the time now. We have entire blocks of the world where it's peaceful, where people go to work, they do their thing, you know, they make meals. We know more about people in other places. And we know more of ways to do things and ways to express ourselves. So I'm actually kind of an optimist. That being said, the important part to remember is that optimism only happens if you want to do the work to keep it there. You know, if you just sit down and say, well, I'm not going to worry about that evil dictator over there. What's that going to matter to me? You will be dealing with that evil dictator at some point because that world is so interconnected. Um, it's funny for me because interviews I've had have been all talking about essentially 
my role as a futurist, which I find kind of funny. But my argument back has been, yeah, I'm a futurist simply because I have to observe how technology and social events happen in order to make the world that we're building believable. They, it has to come from somewhere and it can't just be Ooh, magical, there it happened. You have to have foundations. And if you do that much work, what you'll end up with is a pretty good idea of where we are going and how we're going to get there. So, yeah, it's funny. There's a lot of things I wrote about, you know, 30 years ago. I look up and go, yeah, okay, yeah, we've got that now, you know, and some things we haven't used yet, you know, but we're getting there bit by bit, you know, and uh, the idea, for example, you know, corporations being as ridiculously powerful and dominating our lives that really wasn't a thing that anybody could really think about in 1980 something it was still too far out there but you know think about google think about you know amazon think about the corporations we have now and they're not even going whoa we're an evil corporation they're going well yeah we're providing a service that uses and connects with everybody and we sell their data and we interact with them all that stuff is there. Now, I didn't plan for it roughly, but it was a natural outgrowth of the fact that more and more of what we did was being transferred to uh, technological support rather than face-to-face. -face. So I'm a positive person, but I keep looking over my shoulder. And 2020 was for cyberpunk a benchmark year, and it also it turned out to be a pretty important year for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> Jeez. yeah, I know. We're going to do a 2020 edition of uh, cyberpunk, and we went, oh no, you know, people, we're we're in the middle of you know all kinds of plagues and disruption and economic crash and burn. This was a terrible year. We were okay. I totally wonder how. We had events and stuff happening. For example, in the pandemic, my wife and the rest of the crew were at a industry convention in Las Vegas. No, actually, in Reno. And I was back here banging away. And I suddenly hear about, oh, wow, there's this pandemic thing happening and this thing called COVID. I went, okay. And my wife calls me up and says, yeah, is this going to be a problem? I said, nah, this is. This is Seattle. Nothing ever happens in Seattle. What I did not know at that time was that the place where this all started in the air at home care place was two miles from Talsorian. So I pass it every day. I'm thinking oh, this is going to happen somewhere else. And, you know, I'm in, right at ground zero for COVID-19. And... Uh, that's one of those weird things where you go, I don't know why I'm optimistic, but I'd have to be if I had that many things happening that happened. I believe Paolo wants to come in. Honestly, it's been really a very insightful experience to say the least. Just hearing you talk about your process has been kind of jostling my creative juices, I guess you could say to an extent, because you mentioned before when we were introduced that uh, you wanted to talk to me about game design. You <laughs> wanted to clarify a little bit that while it's in the far off future for me, maybe in 2077, who knows? Because I'm first and foremost a creative writer, actually. Mm -hmm. And you talked a lot about how you transformed creative narrative elements into gameplay elements. And what I wanted to get to, which I think is really cool about 2077 and also all of CD Projekt Red's games, is that 
you are able to somehow transform a narrative element. Like we talked about earlier about how the dragon doesn't just move from one point of the city to another. Like what is it doing in the city? How is it affecting the people? And then how can the player affect that? What I wanted to know was how do you transform all these like writing elements? Because when you write a story about a dragon terrorizing a city, that's easy. And especially based off of what we just talked about, how we feel about real life based off of our mediums of video games. Mm-hmm. How do you transform that so that the gameplay element impacts the player on an emotional level? I will going to actually kick it around in a couple of different directions for you there, Carlos. Starting with uh, one, I'm teasing you about being a game designer. I, my son, who's been with me for his entire life, somehow decided to become a game designer. And he's actually pretty good at it and has published a few you know, dozen major books and things like that. And it's amusing because when we're in Poland, he sits around with the CD guys arguing about Witcher stuff while I'm arguing about cyberpunk stuff. First of all, process process happens, for me at least, by absorbing as much as I can, not just about the subject, but things that might impinge on the subject. I have a joke, which is that to write one of these things is equivalent to you eat a pound of dough. You eat a half a pound of mozzarella, you drink some tomato sauce, you eat a whole pepperoni, and you throw up a pizza. And the point is that you're taking very disparate elements, and you have to put them together to make this thing happen. Now, with that, you have to decide from the get-go, what are the rules of the thing I'm creating first? Because those rules have to exist so that both you and the user are going to understand what they can do, where can they go, how far can I'm in an interesting process now. Uh, I've got a good friend and she's she's working on designing a world with me and the two of us are just kind of mucking about and she's going, well, you know, what's what are the seasons like? And I'm going, yeah, okay, so what are the people like? What do they eat that relates to the seasons and so forth? So she and I just spend a lot of time throwing stuff back and forth to see essentially what the areas that we're defining cover so once you know that the next thing you have to do is to figure out what would be fun for the user to do in that world you know what the world is what's fun what you know and a friend of mine many many years ago came up with this thing said 16 words you have 16 words describe what your world and your game is about and it's a remarkable experience because you get to boil it down and get to the core of what you're really offering in a world. You know, if I have a world that happens underwater, you know, is it that people get to swim around and go places? Do they explore? Are they, you know, battling things? Are they seeking things that are lost? Are they building a civilization? Every single one of those is a different way of using that world that I just built underwater. So as I build it, I have to think, what do I, what do I think they'll want to do? You know, and then I have to make sure that I've studied or rather eaten the right pieces of the pizza so I can give them something back that reflects that ability to do things with the world. One of the things I found fascinating about 77 is they, something people kind of miss, but that they built so many stories and characters in there, which is one of the things I like to do in cyberpunk. And because they have so many people existing in that world that you might interact with, and they all have their own stories, you kind of get to pick what you're going to do 
in relationship to those people that you meet. You know, it's not just I have, you know, this particular character that I'm dealing with who's a major character, but everybody else that touched that major character, everybody else I run across, everybody who needs something or doesn't want me to do something, they're all there as players. And I have to find a way to interact with them. So a lot of times I'm always amused because, you know, I, I'll look over and see posts on, you know, the various boards and so forth like that. And I'll go, okay, so they're, they're arguing about that. That's good. Actually, it's really good. You know, there's a joke I like to say sometimes, which is, you know, you succeeded when you created enough characters that people are having shipping wars. So if they're shipping they, wars, they care. Yeah, they find some element they, that they develop further mm -hmm. and get worried about and argue about. So that's fascinating, too, because you spoke about the characterization. And I imagine mm -hmm. that you have to create enough of the characterization and personality and that at the same time, how are you leaving room for the imagination of your player users to come in and act with agency? You build it as though you're dealing with real people. Okay, you and I are right now essentially in a situation akin to being in a video game. You know, I can see you, I can hear you. I have no idea of what your back history is. I don't know what's happening in the apartment around you, just like you don't know what's happening in my house. I don't know if you have a cat, whether you have a dog, whether you like to eat a particular kind of food, why you ended up in Europe. I don't have any of that. So what do I get? I first get things that we talk about that are shared experiences. If you and I were going to sit around and talk, get to know each other, I'd be like, you know, what do you like to eat? You know, what's your favorite game? You know, what are you reading these days? And those would give me clues. You have to do the same sorts of things, though, beating the user over the head in a game. For example, there's a character in 77, um, and it really amuses me. I, I'm going to skip names because I don't want anybody to be spoiled. But one of the things you discover is that that character likes to go scuba diving in Night City. And you're thinking, okay, I now have a whole bunch of things. But I didn't just you know, stumble across that. I had been talking to her for a while. And we had done stuff with each other. And so, therefore, when she brought up this hobby, it fit into the impression I originally had. So what you have to do is you really do build characters thematically like you're dealing with real people. But the difference is their actions from the moment they meet the player, the user, are actions that are not transparent to the user but they affect the user. So I'll give you an example. If I'm going down a street somewhere and I've just met this guy and he and I have been hitting the bars, have a good time, and suddenly he turns around and pulls out the biggest darn gun you've ever seen. And he shoots some guy that's been walking behind us. I have a lot of things I can choose to do then. You know, pull out my own gun, run for cover, go, what the heck did you do that for, man? Are you crazy? There's a number of things that all give me agency. And I still don't know why he shot that guy. Now, later as we're running down the alley with 50 cops after us or something, I may say, dude, why did you do that? And he'll go, that was the guy who killed my brother. You had a brother? Yeah, that was a long time ago. But, you know, and I will find more. And so later, if, for example, 
a guy who looks a lot like the guy I've been running with shows up. And I find out, oh, yeah, I had a twin once, but I don't know what happened to him. I think he may think I'm dead. Then I go, hmm, okay, guy over here, guy over here, thinks he killed him. Maybe he did, you know, and so I have all these places to go. I know the characters like, but I do not have a defined as to what I will do with an information any more than finding out you like a particular kind of restaurant gives me enough to then chart the course of your life. Mike Pondsmith's experiences from graphic designer to eventual video game designer has inspired me to think about how our ideas are expressed into stories and how the nuances of different mediums bring to attention the details that the creators leave for the audience to discover. As a creative writer, this has me reflecting on how my medium benefits from centralizing the interactivity of my audience with text, similar to how Mike Pondsmith's approach to game design is centered around how the players are naturally guided to the beats of his story without ever having to force a decision or influence an action. And now, back to the podcast. I just, I just don't know how you can keep it all in your mind at all those possibilities. Mm. I believe it's a great, it's a great uh, intellectual. You get to know the characters, you get to know the characters and you get to know what they would do. It's really funny because like, you know, when we were putting Johnny Silverhand together, you know, there were different angles of it, but in the end of it, you know, what cracked me up was that, you know, the, the writing team, got something very important that Johnny is not Johnny Silverhand is not a nice guy. He's a really broken, messed up dude. And they got that. That was the core thing. But you could find that out by looking at how he had related to everybody in his life, including the woman he loved the most. And that he was kind of a guy who thought about his own anger and his own issues before he thought about how that affected anyone else in his life. So with that, you could look at Johnny and go, yeah, it's more than that this guy is, you know, bad news, but he's not bad news because he's evil. He's bad news because he's messed. And Carla, you're really, you're holding back now. Please come in. I don't bite Carla. (laughs) (laughs) I had a question because you're talking about your character design, how you take them and like real people. But I wonder now that we have much more like public forums that people chat about games like cyberpunk 2077 if you ever used conversations from them to gauge the success of messages you wanted to come across from your games or even have taken things that people have said on those online forums as inspiration for future narratives it would be like trying to write something when 100 people a thousand people are writing over your shoulder and say yeah put that in I've worked professionally on projects where I had four masters at once and it drove us all crazy. So I don't usually jump in like that. What I am amused at is trends. I look at, hmm, this character was really popular. Hmm, I wonder why. Let's find out a little bit more. I'll find out, oh yeah, somebody found out about that background thing that I just kind of buried in there to see if somebody would discover it. So that is like a check back to me. Did the information get across? What did people do with it? And along that line, because I'm interested in how people emotionally connect to characters and, you know, the worlds that I'm creating, I look at it also and and sort of see how they use them. You know, for example, you know, I I, am just cracking up at the fact that 
there were a limited number of romantic relationships in 77 and people are fighting over who's the one you want to get hooked up with most or my girlfriend is better than your girlfriend none guys she's not real or conversely everybody going back and forth you know why can't i have a gay relationship with this character but i can with that one over there what do i do when you have compelling characters people want to figure out what those interactions are but it's a good idea not to use that to guide you because when you do you end up with the tail wagging the dog i remember um a couple anime I used to follow, actually manga. And I remember one of the writers had a tendency to write stuff as the players or the users were seeing it. And it took his story, which was going one way, and bent it in a bunch of other ways. It was like several people driving the car all at once. So what was a really tight story when it began was popular until it fell apart because everybody was getting into it. And you're never going to find a situation where everybody agrees with something the same way. So there are different people taking different aspects of different characters every time you create. So that's interesting because one of your games, Mekton, was adapted from uh, manga, but you were using your imagination and diverging from the story. What have you learned in the ways that people in different parts of the world play your games, what does it tell you about those cultures and hmm. countries? That's that's an interesting question. Mechton is actually kind of interesting because it went through a filter. I started, I didn't know a lot about anime. And I was working from books I'd seen. Oh, there are these things called comic um what are they now? Comic journals, I think. Basically, they take cells from the anime and they give you the written dialogue inside of those like a comic and i had that and i had i think voltron at that you know because the stuff was just coming over so there was not a lot so i had to go figure out how it would work what were the rules that made this work what fascinated me was that eventually <laughs> mekton bounced back to japan and japanese then did their own takes on it and the things that they emphasized were different than what I would have emphasized. And for example, you know, one of the things I found interesting was in anime at, from the Japanese standpoint, the giant robot is not it. The giant robot is a way to get the plot from A to B. But what's really going on is the interactions of the various people, which is why even when they're on opposite sides and are enemies, there is a relationship going on all the time. And it gets settled when they both climb into their giant robots and go, you son of a gun, you stole my girlfriend. Oh, yeah, you destroyed my city. Oh, yeah. And then you go at it. Let's fight. But we would have a tendency to simply use that existing relationship as this guy's the bad guy. This guy's the good guy. This guy did this. This guy did that. And we're really there to fight with the robots where I love the fact that in anime stories around giant mech and so forth, it is much more about what the people are doing with a giant robot. And they could have done it with a fast sports car. They could have done it with a giant dog. Or they could have done it with any number of other agencies that would get them into that fight. But what we're really talking about is why Amuro and Shar 
hate each other and how this goes back to their old girlfriend i just love the idea of like all these these anime where you know the guy runs down to the flight deck and he says i'm going after him and you know someone's going that's a 450 billion dollar robot you're taking out i'm gonna kill him no no you don't have permission to do that get back i'm coming for you you know you're thinking if this was a real world, this guy would be, you know, in the brig forever. You know, you, you described yourself as a futurologist. And does that, I mean, I'm not sure exactly. The I got difference. that stuck on me. People oh. have been sticking that when I'm a futurist. And okay. when I figure out what that means, I'm going to add it to my, uh, my business card somewhere, I guess. My wife I, likes to tease me about it. You know, oh, hi, you're a futurist, aren't you? No. <laughs> So I know, I mean, some people say like Kurzweil or some people feel like they'll exist in the future even after they're dead or they'll attach a machine to their body. And, oh, you no. know, <laughs> it's, that's, that's not what you mean exactly. Because I know you've explored cyborgs and that kind of thing. Well, the thing on futurism is that it's basically about, as I'm beginning to put together, that you can make accurate ideas about where humanity is going to go on large things so you know you can say yeah we have cell phones but you can also say we'll have multiple types of instantaneous communication and it will affect us like this you know what i asked was if you could replace any part of your body you know what would you do with that capability how would it affect you if you had a situation where law enforcement and the normal things of society were broken down what systems would you then install to make your world make sense? You know, if you had ecological catastrophe, how would you deal with it? Would you try to, you know, get people to change by the vote? Or would you say, I'm putting a dome over my neighborhood and I'm running out anybody who pollutes? You know, I mean, it's all about how people will implement things as the world changes. So interesting you would talk about anime and manga because mm -hmm. I actually became a creative writer first off because I wrote a lot. It all started with angsty poetry in high school, but then I also kind of hey, revisited too, anime huh? and manga, right? Okay. Those are the best kinds of poems, but I wanted to show you something just real quick because on the topic of Gundams, I actually am in the process of building this because as soon as you said Amro and Char, I knew exactly what you're yeah. talking about. The, the premise sounded way too similar because my brother and I got into that over the pandemic. And it kind of got me thinking about how impactful other forms of storytelling are from anime and manga. And it just kind of made me realize, too, that in, in terms of storytelling in the West, like when we think of like the giant robot genre here, there's not really much. We have Pacific Rim, but even Guillermo del Toro admitted that, that his inspiration for that was Evangelion, which is an older Eva. 90s anime. Yeah. And yeah, I actually Eva. looked into your Mechaton thing, too. And I thought it was interesting that you pulled those ideas from, from Gundam, which is really you know, amazing in my opinion. Yeah. Gundam evolves. That's why it's still universal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there are various, you know, versions of the Gundam story that I just kind of go, no, you know. For example, if I see a, a Gundam wearing a gigantic sombrero, you know, and it's Mexican government, Gundam, I just go, no, no, we're, we're out of here. That is, yes. Yeah. But yeah. others of them, it's like, for example, you know, the Gundam Wing series that, you know, people kind of, it was hit or miss for a lot of people and i looked at it and said okay well you know if i don't take this as just a giant robot show but i take this as you know colliding cultures and suddenly this does make kind of a weird sense yeah i'll watch it this sounds good you know 
And there are different ways to tell stories, but what we tell is generally the same. We talk about friendships, relationships, enemies, family, change. And we all talk about that. We just do it in different ways. I remember um, mm -hmm. a long time ago, my mother and I were watching the equivalent uh, of Japanese TV, which used to be shown off in San Francisco. You, you, if you live there, you know that one. Yeah, and I'm from the city, actually. Watch, yeah. So we would be watching this. And I was used to Japanese storytelling. So my mother wasn't. And she's also, she was a very positive kind of person about that sort of thing. And she's going like, well, why can't the young woman architect who's learning how to do joinery, why can't she get together with the guy who's teaching her? You know, I mean, what's stopping them going, okay, now I'm going to try to explain to you a culture that works like this, you know? And the, the interesting part is always trying to find out when you get something of another culture that tells stories differently, how do I get someone to see that? You know, you're not making a judgment as this is better or worse. You're making a judgment of this is an interesting way to look at it. Maybe you should take a look at this. You know, you might not like it, but, you know, try it. You know, there's all kinds of foods that, you know, people didn't eat 25 years ago. I remember, you know, going back home to New York at the time and saying, hey, this is an avocado. And people going, you eat that? Yeah, I eat that. Oh, it must taste horrible. It's green. Try it. Now avocados everywhere. What I wanted to ask on that note, too, was from all of the media you've consumed, what were some of the most impactful either stories or mediums or even like like you mentioned Gundam before? What were you like the most impactful ones for you that really like not just impacted in the sense of like, I like this, but impactful in the sense of I now I want to like put this into my process. You know, like I really like how this characterization is done. By the yeah, way, that's. You that's tough in some ways because it's such a huge list. I'd have to almost say, I'd almost have to break it down by what particular output I was doing. For example, with Mekton, I was looking at how people use machines, how they relate to machines. So I actually was not just looking at, you know, giant robots, but things like Initial D, you know, or, you know, Zoids, things that were sometimes giant robots, sometimes just about people who had connections with hardware in one way or another that they used to accomplish their goals. And I remember at some point I ran across something, I'm trying to remember what it was, one of, one of the French, one of the French band destinés, one of the, their comic books basically, that was dealing with that. You know, the, the person had a car that was not super powered and like that, but it was like just the key thing they always went back to to solve a particular mystery. They, you know, get in the car, go do this thing. But then, you know, cyberpunk was a lot of different things. I'd say that one, the biggest one, interestingly enough, was Walter John Williams, who interestingly enough was one of the play testers on cyberpunk for a million years back. Walter did something that I thought was really great. He took cyberpunk, the genre, which tended to be a real downer. You know, the heroes never really won. They, you know, they had, they did a good fight, but they went down. Or if they won, it was this very tiny victory. You know, I'm Roy Batty and I find peace. You know, I'm Deckard, I get my girlfriend out of the city somehow, you know, but they never win. And he wrote this really kick butt story called Hardwired. 
in which the hero wins. The hero is a badass, but he's not a hero hero. But, you know, he's a cyborg hero, but he's going, my goal here is to, you know, knock off these guys who are shaping the world from orbit. You know, and how do I do that? And how do I, you know, win? And he wins in the end. There's no question that, you know, Cowboy doesn't win this round. He may not win all of them, but his personal battle worked. And I looked at that and I said, yeah, if I'm going to do a cyberpunk game, I have to make a game where people can win and where they have objective targets that they can look at and say, yeah, I did this and I won. This is one reason why the uh, penultimate uh, game I usually run for conventions, the apartment, is basically about a bunch of people who live in an apartment building and they all have their nice little apartments. And it's in a fairly decent place in Night City. And then somebody corporate-wise decides they're going to put a microwave tower over where their building is. And so they're going to move them all out. And the goal there is, I want to live in my house. I like my apartment. I may not find anything this good, you know, and they'll give me like, you know, pennies on the dollar to move to a much horrible, you know, much more horrible place. So that was a real influence of finding ways to make people capable of winning. And parallel to that, there's a really obscure movie called Streets of Fire, which was, I think, big in the 80s. But Streets of Fire was another one because, again, it was, I have a goal, you know, and I'm going to aim towards it. I came back from the war. My girl's been, you know, kidnapped. My rocket girl girlfriend, basically, has been kidnapped by a bunch of boosters, and I need to get her back. And that's the win condition there. And if I happen to get rid of all the boosters along the way, yeah, okay, fine. But the main thing is I'm getting my girlfriend out of this bad situation. Each one has a winning condition. Let's see. Beyond that, oh man, well, you know, I the thing is, I've written so many things, many of which have never seen the light of day, that it'd be really hard to pick, you know, a, a swathe of them. And it's just there's a lot there. I'm wondering, you know, you grew up, I believe your father was in the Air Force, you were moving mm -hmm. around a lot. I was wondering how that experience influenced your imagination, educated you about the world and the game creator you've become. Actually, it's, it was pretty influential. I, I belong to a Facebook group, which is basically a Facebook group of uh, military brats, which is what we call ourselves. And we all kind of make the assumption that by being children in a military family, as people like to say, I served my 20. <laughs> you know, it's, and to be honest, I feel more comfortable sitting on a military base than many, many other places in the world. You know, so I, I get this. What that does is it means that you have to learn to adapt to new situations fast. You're in one high school. You've got yourself set up. Bam, you're in another high school. Where do I fit in that hierarchy? And then I went to three different high schools, you know, and I had to, I had different places in the hierarchy all the way up and down. So you become flexible. You also become kind of logical because, you know, the military has rules and you can get in trouble doing something that then bounces back to your, your parent who's in the service. So you don't let yourself, I don't know, get hyper emotional and do stupid things. You need to think about them because they have big effects on other people. So, you know, there's a lot of times my sister and I will look at each other and go, 
that was really dumb. Think about all those people that got messed up because that person got upset about something that they didn't need to get upset about. Why? You know, so that affects it. You also have a better feeling for how people use stuff, you know, whether it's, you know, weapons or basically, you know, space and areas like, you know, when you walk through, I walk through uh, a neighborhood, I kind of look at it and go, if this were a, were a base, you know, where's the BX? Where do people get food? You know, where do they park their cars? Where's the motor pool? And I can't stop myself from seeing that because growing up on a base so many times, you got this tiny little cos cosmology of how the place worked. What did you need to have in a neighborhood? You had to have a hospital, you had to have fire, you had to have police, you had to have all these things. And it was like you had this little tiny village and you could look at it. So later when I started looking at places that I was going to populate in a story, I would look at it the same way and go, okay, so I, what, where do they buy food? You know, where's the hospital? How does this work? Who's in charge? Who's at the top of the hierarchy? Who's at the bottom of the hierarchy? So I'd say that's one of the big effects that the military, you know, upbringing had. And again, you also get dropped into many, many other cultures and you're going to have to learn to accept them because you you're there. You know, I mean, if you're in another culture somewhere, you better learn the language and how to get along with the other kids because that's your life. You know, and you can't afford to go and go, well, you know, I come from this part of the United States. Well, yeah, and he came from this part of, you know, Germany. Get used to it, you know. Yeah, that seems like a really great training. And I think I'm really interested in also, you mentioned the environment or how we might live more in harmony with well, you didn't quite, but you were discussing, as you discuss the future, we have to think about, you know, our finite mm, resources. Yeah. And we also have a parallel podcast, which is called One Planet. So I guess, you know, in closing, as you think about, unless Carla, if you want to come in and have a quick question, because I was kind of curious on your, if you just kind of, you talked about designing video games, but in a way that the tabletop design document format, which of those do you find yourself preferring to make and create stories for video games or tabletop games? I'll be really honest, they're not really that different. The biggest difference is that with a tabletop, you don't have to find a way to make the software and the limitations of you know, the engine you're using cover all the things you might have in your head. But you still have to have the rules of the world you still have to know how characters interact within that world. You have to know the literal physics of that world. You know, you can't just say, you know, I can run this fast. How big is the world? Can I run all the way across the world? Can I run 50 feet across the world? So all of those things get built no matter what type of game you're building. You have to have the ground rules. And, you know, I stress this over and over and over again to people who ask me, is if you don't know what the ground rules are of your world, your world is not going to feel right. Even if it's a fantasy or a fantastic world, you have to have that. It's like, you know, the other day we were having this big discussion around here about Star Wars. And we were actually looking and describing uh, some stuff that was happening in Mandalorian. And we were talking about the fact that in many ways, Mandalorian did an excellent job of following the rules that have been laid down in the first two movies of star wars you know how long it took to get from one place to another 
you know, what was out there in the jungle and wastes, you know, how did you get money? How did you deal with, you know, the criminal element? Could you just get in your ship? Did you always have to go to Moss Eisley? Could you land in the middle of nowhere? And how did you upkeep that ship? You know, all those things were there. And that's why you believed in Star Wars. You would look at something, you go, hmm, okay, I get it, you know. And you didn't look at a spaceship like the Millennium Falcon and go, oh, man, that's the future. You went, damn, that's a hot rod. Now, how would I get one of those? You know, you're immediately thinking, if you live there, how would I get a hot rod like that? You you didn't move it as a spaceship. You moved it as it's something cool and fast. And those principles underlie, I think, any good video game. And they're just exposed in a tabletop. The tabletop in many ways becomes kind of a loose design document that can sometimes get pretty tight but it illuminates what you're going to have to do what you're going to have to go back to the team with and say okay so you know you never had to do this before but we actually have an important part where somebody flushes things down the toilet so you're gonna have to actually figure out how a toilet works and it can't just be words it's got to be set up in such a way that certain things go down they're recoverable somewhere else and people can't hide in there or something, you know, and suddenly you've got an entire team of 25 people going, you idiot. Why did you come up with this? I could throw that out in a tabletop. If I'm going to do it in a video game, I better darn well have a good reason to burn all those people's cycles to get it. So you think more about it and it always helps to have it locked down for me, at least in some kind of tabletop first. Well, that's really the power of having strong foundations set in your storytelling. And I think it serves your games well as creating that long-term emotional bonding, really, and mm-hmm. imaginative bonding with their characters. And then just in closing, you were mentioning, you know, sort of having good uh, ground rules. Uh, and now we're thinking about the future where we're kind of having to rewrite our systems, redefine what our values are as we think about some of the more serious issues of our time, the environment, our current systems, technology, so as uh, education. So as you mm-hmm. think of the future and societal problems and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what are your hopes what kind of changes would you like to see and what would you like young people to know preserve and well the interesting part is i think that for all the yucky stuff that's happened pandemics and everything else we actually have an incredible opportunity and we should be using it we have proven that people can run a society and keep things rolling even if they aren't face to face all the time which means that's going to change how people do work it's going to make work a lot more like something that you actually do rather than you plug yourself into a piece, a cubicle or whatever. So we're changing the nature of work. We're changing the nature of communications. You know, a long, long time ago at a convention, I got in a discussion with Larry Niven, science fiction writer, about why people wouldn't use video phones. And I said, well, you can't lie to your boss that you're sick on a video phone. You know, we use phones differently. But now we have to find ways because we can't do it in person. And what will happen is people will not just use that because they are limited. They can't, you know, meet up in person. Instead, 
they're going to realize there's other ways they could use that. You and I can have this conversation. I'm in a game right now. My daughter's running and she has somebody who dials in on the game and all that. And the other day I was talking to her, I said, Em, you know, so where are you now? She said, oh, I'm still in Japan. I would have never known. You know, she was just dialed in and there was no way to know that. So it meant that activities that would normally be separated were suddenly able to link up. For the future, one of the biggest things I really want people younger generation, whatever. It's kind of odd for me, younger generation, because most of the people that I either work with or hang out with are in like their 20s or 30s. And uh, people who are, you know, in their 50s and 60s, I tend to go, yeah, dude, you're really boring. But one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of those younger people are actually much nicer than they need to be. And they have to realize that this is going to be your world. It turns out the way you want to make it. And so you should be thinking now of what you want out of this. What do you want that world to be? Do not wait around until, you know, the two generations beyond you have gone ahead and done it the way they wanted. Because by the time they get done, you're not going to have the chance to shift it to where you want it. So start thinking now about where do you want to be? What is the future you want? And don't be nice about it. Just go ahead and start planning it now. You know, theoretically, I fit boomer to, although my wife and I tend to think of ourselves as more Gen X, but generally, you know, a lot of those people who are coming out of the, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, those are people who have had an entirely different world, a world with just unbelievable prosperity, unbelievable, you know, no, no human group has ever had as much as we had in the 60s and 70s, whether we realize it or not. But that's going to make it really hard for those people to realize their limits. It's not even going to be in their mental space for the most part. And that means don't hope that they'll realize that their limits start working to deal with those limits now. You know, this is your world. It is what you make it. Well, that's very sound advice for someone who has uh, seized the day. And yeah, you we there. You know, time is a, a finite resource, and and you've certainly you know built worlds. And I guess the thing is for the next generation is that you know, they have their, their future to, to build. I feel very hopeful. We have young people taking part in, in our interviews and today at Carla and Paolo and, and many others. So I, I see a lot of, you know, young leaders, young imaginative people there. So, and you certainly provide a beautiful example of how they may might shape their future. So I want to thank you, uh, Mike Ponsmith for inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing your insights about the future and society. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Paolo Banzon. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your own creative works for review, 
just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.